0: Yeah. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Wow, I hope you enjoyed uh, watching that as much as we enjoyed doing it. Uh, it was a, a labor of love, but uh, I wish I could show you the outtakes, but we don't have time uh, to show those today. Uh, the blooper reel would be quite something to, to watch. I want to say thank you to our third to fifth graders for sharing the word with us this morning, just a few moments ago. And then I also want to say thank you to our kindergarten through second graders who helped us tell the story through this video. And then uh, our staff who's amazing and good sports all at the same time. So very grateful for that. And a big, big thanks to uh, Elizabeth Pruitt and the folks up at the hair farm for letting us use their facilities up there. Uh, Just a beautiful place up there to to shoot that. And I always knew Kevin was a wise guy. And so (laughs) grateful for for him. Uh, At the end of today's message, like I mentioned to you a few moments ago, Uh, we are going to participate in the communion meal. And so, I'm going to ask those who are passing out the communion elements, if you'll stand and uh, grab your baskets. And if you did not receive a communion packet on the way in and you wish to participate in that here in just a little bit, if you'll just slip your hand up, we'll be happy to have somebody bring that to you uh, so that you'll have those ready to go. Those some coming from the back, some coming from over here. So, we should be able to get everybody uh, served here in just a moment. I appreciate uh, Pete Blank telling us about uh, this, the inexpressible joy. Uh, and the dishwashing detergent that he mentioned a few moments ago, I was thinking, of just kind of dating myself as well, uh, going through some of the Christmas movies this week and uh, came across uh, Home Alone, uh, the original one, right? not, not the Home Alone 14, but, but the original one uh, with Macaulay Culkin. And, uh, and here, here's a, a fun fact, uh, m- me and Macaulay Culkin are the same age. Uh, we were born in the same year, so little Kevin McAllister and, and me are the same. So that was just a, a little dose of reality for me uh, this week as I was reflecting uh, on that. But have you ever considered the variety of characters in the Christmas story? As you were watching the video just a moment ago, have you ever stopped to really think about just the, the difference— in all the characters that we find in the Christmas story. I mean, yes, you had the shepherds, uh, but you also had the wise guys. Uh, You had Mary and you had Joseph. You had those with and you had those without. You didn't have just one people group. You had multiple groups of people that participated in Christ's coming to this earth. The coming— The Advent is literally what that word means. The Advent of Jesus, it has something to say to all of us. It has something to say to every single one of us. It's not just a story for a particular group or a particular person. It is a story for all of us. And so we've been exploring these themes of Advent, the theme of hope, the theme of peace. Today, the theme of of joy. Next week, we'll look at the theme of love. And we've been searching the scriptures to see what God's Word says about each of those. And so, the first time that we see this word joy in Luke chapter 1, verse 14, is when Dr. Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So, before the birth of Jesus was foretold, the birth of a man named John the Baptist was foretold. And the angel tells Zechariah that his wife is going to bear a son, and you are to call him John. And Luke 1, 14, he will be what? He will be a joy. In Greek, he will be a kara. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then down in verse 18, if you're following along in Luke 1, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now, how slick is Zechariah? I'm old, (laughs) but my wife, uh, she's well along in years, right? I mean, this is a a smooth move from from Zechariah. However, uh, what we see in the text is that the angel says that you will be silent until John is born because—why? Because you did not not belief, what was that like for Zechariah? Can you imagine what it would be like to have to be silent for nine months? I mean, what if you had that authority? What if you had that power in your life? I mean, who, who would you silence uh, for a season? Don't answer that out loud, please. They may be sitting next to you. Who, who would you silence if you had that authority, if you had that, that power? Or maybe I should ask it this way, have you ever felt like you didn't have a voice? Have you ever felt like you did not have a voice? Maybe you can relate to Zechariah for the nine months that he went without a voice. Or maybe you can relate to Elizabeth who felt disgraced because she could not have children. Have you ever felt disgrace because of something that was beyond your control? Maybe you can relate to Elizabeth. In verse 25, Elizabeth declares that the Lord has taken my disgrace away. The Lord has done this for me, she says. He has taken her disgrace, replaced it with his grace. The Lord has done this for me. She gives birth to John the Baptist. Then Dr. Luke says this in the sixth month, verse 26. It's a minor detail, but it's a major point. What we're reminded of is that nothing about this story is fable. Nothing about this story is myth. Nothing about this story is just merely legend. Dr. Luke has done careful, scholarly, spirit-led research. He gives dates. He gives places. He gives eyewitnesses. And if he's trying to pull one over on us, speaking for the skeptics, he has done a really poor job of it. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel didn't visit a man in the temple like he did with Zechariah. He didn't go to a church building like he did with Zechariah. No, he, he visited a woman. Mary in the obscure Galilean village of Nazareth. Now, I've I've personally been to Nazareth. I've d- driven around Nazareth. I've walked around. It's not it's not much. It's not like a, a great metropolis like some of these cities that that we have in in the United States, it's not like you know New York or it's not even like Birmingham. I mean, there's not a whole lot going on in Nazareth. Matter of fact, in John chapter one, Nathaniel asks, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" And this was apparently a, a phrase of the day. It was a question that was regularly asked: "Can anything good actually come from Nazareth?" And yet the camera zooms in on this place, not in Jerusalem. not not in the temple where where things are expected to happen, not in the church building where things are expected to happen, but in Galilee, in the town of Nazareth. And here Mary stands in contrast to Zechariah. She too is caught off guard by the same angel and hears words that she can scarcely take in. She too questions. But Mary questions from a different posture. She questions from a place of humble perplexity. And so oftentimes we will talk about Mary's humble obedience, but have you ever stopped to consider her courageous consent? That she's not just taking a humble stance, but she's also saying a courageous yes I am wholly yours I am fully open to your word I believe let it be so with me by her posture she makes room for God literally Advent invites us to do the same which brings us to our second encounter with joy in Luke chapter 1 Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth And in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears? Elizabeth says, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Is there anything that's ever caused you to leap for joy? Maybe not doing the dishes, Pete. Didn't cause you to leap for joy, but one of the things that we were reminded of is that joy is is something that is cultivated inside of us from God. It It is a fruit of his very spirit. Blessed is she, who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. What a beautiful picture of unbridled joy, the anticipation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 17 would say it this way. For the kingdom of God is is not a matter of, of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. We see that word, karah, come come back in Paul's writings. Joy in what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. In the Advent devotional book, Mary had a baby based on the African-American spiritual. The authors say this about Mary. You'll see it on the screen. Rather than being scared, she celebrated a sacred trust. Rather than being fearful, she accepted that she had been favored. She recognized God as being one who can turn any situation around, raising up those of low estate and humbling the proud. Rather than feeling punished, she knew that her baby was one of promise. Mary had a baby, oh my Lord. The next verse in Luke 146 uh, begins the song of Mary. Uh, This is what's become known in many circles as the Magnificat, which is just a a Latin word that means magnifies. And so as significant as Mary is in the Christian story, what we see through the biblical narrative is that Mary only speaks through the words and pages of Scripture four times. In all of your Scripture, this is all we see. Four times. She speaks to the angel at the Annunciation— She speaks to Jesus at age 12 in the temple. She speaks to Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana. And she speaks here in the Magnificat. Magnifies. It's believed that Mary was only a teenager in Luke chapter 1. And so I want to invite one of our singers who is also a teenager to join me on stage, Journey Rudolph, if you'll come up. And as Journey reads to us, The song of mary i want us to feel the weight of mary's words from the lips of a teenage girl
1: and mary said my soul glorifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant from now on all generations will call me blessed He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendant forever, just as he promised our ancestors.
0: The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Journey. I appreciate that so much. A teenage girl who proclaimed one of the most well-known songs now of Christian history didn't come from the lips of a famous preacher, didn't come from the lips of somebody who was in high status and high regard, somebody who only spoke four times in Scripture. Mary's song is a hymn of gratitude as well as triumph that speaks of how God intervenes on behalf of the unfortunate. It even has these echoes from the First Testament, the Old Testament, from the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. Uh, just think about how subversive these words would have been in the time of King Herod. Verse 53, 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Mary's Magnificat anticipates what will happen when her son grows up and be- begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It is welcomed, it will be welcomed by the poor. It will be welcomed by the sick, the downcast, the outcast, who are open to Jesus' message. Arthur Brian Zahn says it this way, what we learn from the Magnificat is that the grace of God flows downhill toward the lowly places in our lives. There may be places in your life where you are strong, successful, and rich, and this can be a blessing but be careful and always remember that grace flows downhill. In our contemporary context, I think we would do well to be formed by the Magnificat. Uh, One of my favorite Christmas stories actually happened about seven years ago in a little place called Tadcaster, England. It's about three hours uh, north of London and seven years ago, around Christmas time, uh, there was uh, uh, reports that started coming in of a car that was swerving and uh, driving recklessly on the road. And, and that car would, would finally crash into a telephone pole. Uh, it would be determined that the driver had had too much to drink. And, and the driver actually exited the vehicle and began to run. And the driver fled to a nearby church and was found, of all places, a few minutes later, hiding in the nativity scene. He had become one of the extra wise men. And so when the police officers went to this church and they're looking at the nativity scene, they're thinking, well, why are are there four wise men in in the nativity scene? And here they they find their, their culprit. And while I would never advocate driving while inebriated, I love this story because it reminds me that in the middle of my darkest hour, the coming of the king who would usher in a kingdom not of this world has something to say to us. That in the middle of your health crisis, in the the middle of your financial uncertainty, in the middle of your identity crisis, in the middle of a marriage that is coming unraveled, in the middle of worrying about a child who has become so distant, in the middle of worrying about a parent, an aging parent, in the the middle of wondering how you're going to make it without a loved one, in the middle of you hitting rock bottom in your life. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's in those moments that we run to the reminder that God has broken into this world. Even if you feel worthless, the definition of yourself does not influence God's perspective of who you are. Whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever regret that you have in this life, here's the news. Jesus has come. And Jesus is coming again. And so the one that was born in the manger has come so that you too may be born again. Just a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, Jesus would echo his mother's song. This would not be a song. It would be a sermon. It would become known as the sermon on the plain. And in Luke chapter six, here's what Jesus proclaims. Looking at his disciples, he said, verse 20, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Catch this, verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Do you see the echo of the Christmas story coming back in Jesus' sermon? Because great is your reward in heaven. Just a few reminders today that I hope will carry you into the remainder of this Christmas season. Reminders that we see right there in the text. Some of us know these reminders. Some of us need these reminders for the first time. The first one is this, that the Lord is still with you. We see that in Luke 128. That you you may be here today and you've been in a season where any sense of joy has been absent. Any sense of joy seems so far distant from where you've been. And so I don't know everyone's story in here. But what I do know with all of my heart is that the Lord is closer than you think. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Don't wait until January 1st to renew your commitment to Christ. Make that commitment today. The second reminder is this, is that the Holy Spirit still comes upon you. That's Luke 135. There are things that I cannot do apart from the Spirit of God. The difference between Mary's question and Zachariah's question was, Zechariah's question involved, God, how will, how can you work? He, he was, you, you notice that he said, I, how can you work in my situation? I don't believe it. How can you even do this? Did you notice Mary's question though? It's God, how, how will you work? I trust you, God. How, how will you work? I believe somebody here needs to to hear that today, to hear that reminder that you will be tempted this week to say, well, I don't see how God or anyone else can do anything about what I'm going through. And just as the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, I believe the Holy Spirit can redirect your question to be not how can, but how will. How will God work in this? Number three is that the power of the Most High still overshadows you. That when God overshadows something or someone, that the spiritual reality of his presence focused upon that object experiences what? It experiences the full effects of his purpose for overshadowing. When we become pregnant with purpose, willing to produce what God wants in our lives, we begin to embrace the overshadowing of God. And the fourth thing is this, is that the Lord, I'm the Lord's servant is still our response. Did you notice Mary's words in Luke 138? Mary teaches us that when we hope for a visit from God, a new breaking in on us, we ought to be prepared to do what God asks us to do. This past week, I was getting my hair cut. Um, The person who was cutting my hair was uh, kind to point out that I'm getting some gray hairs. (laughs) And as she's cutting my hair, as often what will happen in those times is a conversation ensues. I ask about her family. She starts telling me about her daughter was 20 years old. She was sharing the concern that her her daughter is wavering in in her belief. And you could tell just the, the look of concern on this mother's face. But because bef- before she was a, a hairstylist, she was a mother. And so we we just talk about that for a few moments. Uh, my encouragement to to her in that moment is is to continue to to be planting seeds. I pray for her. And the reality is, as I was reminded in that moment, that we we face encounters every day. We come across people every day, sometimes people in our own home. And we need to assume the posture of, I am the Lord's servant. What would you do through me, Lord? Adam Hamilton in his book, Not a Silent Night, says this. Our mission at Christmas is not to get stuff for people to open on Christmas morning. It is to be people of hope who let Jesus' light shine through them, who act as his witnesses so that others see him in us, who offer hope and help, who pray and work so that our world looks more like the kingdom Jesus proclaimed. This is what Mary would have been doing, and this is what we are called to do, I want to invite you to be uh, pulling out your communion elements. In just a moment, we're going to participate in a time of communion together. Uh, we're told in Acts 1 14 that following Jesus' ascension and before the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples and certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers, constantly devoted themselves to prayer. Mary had had witnessed the the terrible death of her son, and then she had the joy of seeing her son resurrected from the dead. But then 40 days later, she witnessed him leaving once more in the ascension. If Mary would have died around age 60, which some traditions suggest, then she would have had about 15 years to ponder, to think about. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. What do you think that Mary remembered the most during those years? What do you think that she reflected on most commonly during those years? Maybe she remembered how Jesus received his name. In Matthew 1, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How many times over the years did Mary ponder the meaning of that name? How he would save his people from their sins. Mary may have been the first theologian to ponder how Jesus' death brings about salvation. For, For Mary, the cross only made sense in light of the events surrounding Christmas. About 33 years before, Simeon had said Mary's soul would be pierced. The key to making sense of her son's suffering and death were in the words spoken about him just after his birth and so we eat the bread and drink the cup this morning and take a moment to ponder Jesus's words when he gathered in the upper room with his disciples and said this is my body this is my blood the meal that we're about to participate in is the feast that celebrates the destruction of life of death and the giving of eternal life this is what we're about to participate in As we eat the the bread and drink the cup, in just a moment, um, Kevin and his son and daughter, Mitchell and Caitlin, are going to come up, and they're going to share a song with us. This is the first time that these three have sang together on stage. There's just something about family harmony that communicates in a way. If you've ever sung with your family, you know that there's just something beautiful about family harmony. But as we eat the bread and and drink the cup this morning, I want us to be reminded of the cosmic Christmas that took place all these years ago and how it set into motion the life-changing news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the bread and the cup. Lord Jesus, uh, your, your flesh and blood are indeed the great feast of, of God. And it's represented in the emblems that we now hold in our hands. Father, we thank you that in the communion meal that we find the feast of eternal life. So may we eat and drink with joy. In Jesus' good name, amen.